philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and the beautiful by Edmund Burke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. A philosophical inquiry into the origin of our ideas of the sublime and the beautiful by Edmund Burke. Part 1. Section 9. The final cause of the difference between the passions belonging to self-preservation and those which regard the society of the sexes. The final cause of the difference in character between the passions which regard self-preservation and those which are directed to the multiplication of the species will illustrate the foregoing remarks yet further and it is, I imagine, worthy of observation even upon its own account. As the performance of our duties of every kind depends upon life, and the performing them with vigor and efficacy depends upon health, we are very strongly affected with whatever threatens the destruction of either. But as we were not made to acquiesce in life and health, the simple enjoyment of them is not attended with any real pleasure, lest, satisfied with that, we should give ourselves over to indolence and inaction. On the other hand, the generation of mankind is a great purpose, and it is requisite that men should be animated to the pursuit of it by some great incentive. It is therefore attended with a very high pleasure, but as it is by no means designed to be our constant business, it is not fit that the absence of this pleasure should be attended with any considerable pain. The difference between men and brutes in this point seems to be remarkable. Men are at all times pretty equally disposed to the pleasures of love, because they are to be guided by reason in the time and manner of indulging them. Had any great pain arisen from the want of this satisfaction, reason, I am afraid, would find great difficulties in the performance of its office. But brutes that obey laws, in the execution of which their own reason has but little share, have their stated seasons. At such times it is not improbable that the sensation from the want is very troublesome, because the end must be then answered, or be missed in many, perhaps forever, as the inclination returns only with its season. Section 10. Of Beauty. The passion which belongs to generation merely as such is lust only. This is evident in brutes, whose passions are more unmixed, and which pursue their purposes more directly than ours. The only distinction they observe with regard to their mates is that of sex. It is true that they stick severally to their own species in preference to all others, but this preference, I imagine, does not arise from any sense of beauty which they find in their species, as Mr. Addison supposes, but from a law of some other kind, to which they are subject. In this we may fairly conclude, from their apparent want of choice amongst those objects to which the barriers of their species have confined them. But man, who is a creature adapted to a greater variety and intricacy of relation, connects with the general passion the idea of some social qualities which direct and heighten the appetite which he has in common with all other animals. And as he is not designed like them to live at large, 
it is fit that he should have something to create a preference and to fix his choice, and this in general should be some sensible quality. As this, no other can so quickly, so powerfully, or so surely produce its effect. The object, therefore, of this mixed passion, which we call love, is the beauty of the sex. Men are carried to the sex in general, as it is the sex and by the common law of nature, but they are attached to particulars by personal beauty. I call beauty a social quality, for where women and men, and not only they, but when other animals give us a sense of joy and pleasure in beholding them, and there are many that do so, they inspire us with sentiments of tenderness and affection towards their persons. We like to have them near us, and we enter willingly into a kind of relation with them, unless we should have strong reasons to the contrary. But to what end in many cases this was designed, I am unable to discover, for I see no greater reason for a connection between man and several animals who are attired in so engaging a manner than between him and some others who entirely want this attraction, or possess it in a far weaker degree. But it is probable that providence did not make even this distinction, but with a view to some great end, though we cannot perceive distinctly what it is, as his wisdom is not our wisdom, nor our ways his ways. Section 11. Society and Solitude. The second branch of the social passions is that which administers to society in general. With regard to this, I observe that society, merely as society, without any particular heightenings, gives us no positive pleasure in the enjoyment. But absolute and entire solitude, that is, the total and perpetual exclusion from all society, is as great a positive pain as can almost be conceived. Therefore, in the balance between the pleasure of general society and the pain of absolute solitude, pain is the predominant idea. But the pleasure of any particular social enjoyment outweighs very considerably the uneasiness caused by the want of that particular enjoyment, so that the strongest sensations relative to the habitudes of particular society are sensations of pleasure. Good company, lively conversations, and the endearments of friendship fill the mind with great pleasure. A temporary solitude, on the other hand, is itself agreeable. This may perhaps prove that we are creatures designed for contemplation as well as action, since solitude as well as society has its pleasures. As from the former observation we may discern that an entire life of solitude contradicts the purposes of our being, since death itself is scarcely an idea of more terror. Section 12. Sympathy, Imitation, and Ambition. Under this denomination of society, the passions are of a complicated kind, and branch out into a variety of forms, agreeably to that variety of ends they are to serve in the great chain of society. The three principal links in this chain are sympathy, imitation, 
and ambition. Section 13. Sympathy. It is by the first of these passions that we enter into the concerns of others, that we are moved as they are moved, and are never suffered to be indifferent spectators of almost anything which men can do or suffer. For sympathy must be considered as a sort of substitution by which we are put into the place of another man, and affected in many respects as he is affected, so that this passion may either partake of the nature of those which regard self-preservation, and turning upon pain may be a source of the sublime, or it may turn upon ideas of pleasure, and then whatever has been said of the social affections, whether they regard society in general, or only some particular modes of it, may be applicable here. It is by this principle chiefly that poetry, painting, and other affecting arts transfuse their passions from one breast to another, and are often capable of grafting a delight on wretchedness, misery, and death itself. It is a common observation that objects which in the reality would shock are in tragical and such-like representations the source of a very high species of pleasure. This, taken as a fact, has been the cause of much reasoning. The satisfaction has been commonly attributed first to the comfort we receive in considering that so melancholy a story is no more than a fiction, and next to the contemplation of our own freedom from the evils which we see represented. I am afraid it is a practice much too common in inquiries of this nature to attribute the cause of feelings which merely arise from the mechanical structure of our bodies, or from the natural frame and constitution of our minds, to certain conclusions of the reasoning faculty on the objects presented to us. For I should imagine that the influence of reason in producing our passions is nothing near so extensive as it is commonly believed. Section 14. The Effects of Sympathy in the Distresses of Others To examine this point concerning the effect of tragedy in a proper manner, we must previously consider how we are affected by the feelings of our fellow creatures in circumstances of real distress. I am convinced we have a degree of delight, and that no small one, in the real misfortunes and pains of others. For let the affection be what it will in appearance, if it does not make us shun such objects, if on the contrary it induces us to approach them, if it makes us dwell upon them, in this case I conceive we must have a delight or pleasure of some species or other in contemplating objects of this kind. Do we not read the authentic histories of scenes of this nature with as much pleasure as romances or poems where the incidents are fictitious? The prosperity of no empire nor the grandeur of no king can so agreeably affect in the reading as the ruin of the state of Macedon and the distress of its unhappy prince. Such a catastrophe touches us in history as much as the destruction of Troy does in fable. Our delight, in cases of this kind, 
is very greatly heightened, if the sufferer be some excellent person who sinks under an unworthy fortune. Scipio and Cato are both virtuous characters, but we are more deeply affected by the violent death of the one, and the ruin of the great cause he adhered to, than with the deserved triumphs and uninterrupted prosperity of the other. For terror is a passion which always produces delight when it does not press too closely, and pity is a passion accompanied with pleasure, because it arises from love and social affection. Whenever we are formed by nature to any active purpose, the passion which animates us to it is attended with delight or a pleasure of some kind. Let the subject matter be what it will. And as our Creator has designed that we should be united by the bond of sympathy, He has strengthened that bond by a proportionable delight, and there most where our sympathy is most wanted, in the distresses of others. If this passion was simply painful, we would shun with the greatest care all persons and places that could excite such a passion, as some who are so far gone in indolence as not to endure any strong impression actually do. But the case is widely different with the greater part of mankind. There is no spectacle we so eagerly pursue as that of some uncommon and grievous calamity, so that whether the misfortune is before our eyes, or whether they are turned back to it in history, it always touches with delight. This is not an unmixed delight, but blended with no small uneasiness. The delight we have in such things hinders us from shunning scenes of misery, and the pain we feel prompts us to relieve ourselves in relieving those who suffer, and all this antecedent to any reasoning by an instinct that works us to its own purposes without concurrence. Section 15 of the Effects of Tragedy It is thus in real calamities. In imitated distresses, the only difference is the pleasure resulting from the effects of imitation. For it is never so perfect, but we can perceive it as imitation, and on that principle are somewhat pleased with it. And indeed, in some cases, we derive as much or more pleasure from that source than from the thing itself. But then I imagine we shall be much mistaken if we attribute any considerable part of our satisfaction in tragedy to the consideration that tragedy is a deceit, and its representations no realities. The nearer it approaches the reality, and the further it removes us from all idea of fiction, the more perfect is its power. But be its power of what kind it will, it never approaches to what it represents. Choose a day on which to represent the most sublime and affecting tragedy we have. Appoint the most favorite actors. Spare no cost upon the scenes and decorations. Unite the greatest efforts of poetry, painting, and music. And when you have collected your audience, just at the moment when their minds are erect with expectation, let it be reported that a state criminal of high rank is on the point of being executed in the adjoining square. In a moment, the emptiness of the theater would demonstrate, 
the comparative weakness of the imitative arts, and proclaim the triumph of the real sympathy. I believe that this notion of our having a simple pain in the reality, yet a delight in the representation, arises from hence, that we do not sufficiently distinguish what we would by no means choose to do from what we should be eager enough to see if it was once done. We delight in seeing things which so far from doing our heartiest wishes would be to see redressed. This noble capital, the pride of England and of Europe, I believe no man is so strangely wicked as to desire to see destroyed by a conflagration or an earthquake, though he should be removed himself to the greatest distance from the danger. But suppose such a fatal accident to have happened, what numbers from all parts would crowd to behold the ruins, and amongst them many who would have been content never to have seen London in its glory. Nor is it, either in real or fictitious distresses, our immunity from them which produces our delight. In my own mind I can discover nothing like it. I apprehend that this mistake is owing to a sort of sophism by which we are frequently imposed upon. It arises from our not distinguishing between what is indeed a necessary condition to our doing or suffering anything in general, and what is the cause of some particular act. If a man kills me with a sword, it is a necessary condition to this that we should have been both of us alive before the fact. And yet it would be absurd to say that our being both living creatures was the cause of his crime and of my death. So it is certain that it is absolutely necessary my life should be out of any imminent hazard before I can take a delight in the sufferings of others, real or imaginary, or indeed in anything else from any cause whatsoever. But then it is a sophism to argue from thence that this immunity is the cause of my delight either on these or on any occasions. No one can distinguish such a cause of satisfaction in his own mind, I believe. Nay, when we do not suffer any very acute pain, nor are exposed to any imminent danger of our lives, we can feel for others whilst we suffer ourselves, and often then most when we are softened by affliction. We see with pity even distresses which we would accept in the place of our own. Section 16. Imitation. The second passion belonging to society is imitation, or, if you will, a desire of imitating, and consequently a pleasure in it. This passion arises from much the same cause with sympathy, for as sympathy makes us take a concern in whatever men feel, so this affection prompts us to copy whatever they do, and consequently we have a pleasure in imitating, and in whatever belongs to imitation merely as it is such, without any intervention of the reasoning faculty, but solely from our natural constitution, which providence has framed in such a manner as to find either pleasure or delight, according to the nature of the object, in whatever regards the purposes of our being. It is by imitation far more than by precept that we learn everything. 
And what we learn thus, we acquire not only more effectually, but more pleasantly. This forms our manners, our opinions, our lives. It is one of the strongest links of society. It is a species of mutual compliance which all men yield to each other without constraint to themselves, and which is extremely flattering to all. Herein it is that painting and many other agreeable arts have laid one of the principal foundations of their power, and since by its influence on our manners and our passions it is of such great consequence, I shall here venture to lay down a rule which may inform us with a good degree of certainty when we are to attribute the power of the arts to imitation, or to our pleasure in the skill of the imitator merely, and when to sympathy, or some other cause in conjunction with it. When the object represented in poetry or painting is such as we could have no desire of seeing in the reality, then I may be sure that its power in poetry or painting is owing to the power of imitation, and to no cause operating in the thing itself. So it is with most of the pieces which the painters call still life. In these, a cottage, a dunghill, the meanest and most ordinary utensils of the kitchen are capable of giving us pleasure. But when the object of the painting or poem is such as we should run to see if real, let it affect us with what odd sort of sense it will, we may rely upon it that the power of the poem or picture is more owing to the nature of the thing itself than to the mere effect of imitation, or to a consideration of the skill of the imitator, however excellent. Aristotle has spoken so much and so solidly upon the force of imitation in his poetics that it makes any further discourse upon this subject the less necessary. Section 17. Ambition. Although imitation is one of the great instruments used by providence in bringing our nature towards its perfection, yet if men gave themselves up to imitation entirely, and each followed the other, and so on in an eternal circle, it is easy to see that there never could be any improvement amongst them. Men must remain as brutes do, the same at the end that they are at this day, and that they were in the beginning of the world. To prevent this, God has planted in man a sense of ambition and a satisfaction arising from the contemplation of his excelling his fellows in something deemed valuable amongst them. It is this passion that drives men to all the ways we see in use of signalizing themselves and that tends to make whatever excites in a man the idea of this distinction so very pleasant. It has been so strong as to make very miserable men take comfort that they were supreme in misery, and certain it is that where we cannot distinguish ourselves by something excellent, we begin to take a complacency in some singular infirmities, follies, or defects of one kind or other. It is on this principle that flattery is so prevalent, for flattery is no more than what raises in a man's mind an idea of a preference which he has not. Now whatever, either on good or upon bad grounds, tends to raise a man in his own opinion, produces a sort of swelling and triumph, 
that is extremely grateful to the human mind, and this swelling is never more perceived nor operates with more force than when without danger we are conversant with terrible objects, the mind always claiming to itself some part of the dignity and importance of the things which it contemplates. Hence proceeds what Longinus has observed of that glorying and sense of inward greatness that always fills the reader of such passages in poets and orators as are sublime. It is what every man must have felt in himself upon such occasions. Section 18. The Recapitulation. To draw the whole of what has been said into a few distinct points, the passions which belong to self-preservation turn on pain and danger. They are simply painful when their causes immediately affect us. They are delightful when we have an idea of pain and danger, without being actually in such circumstances. This delight I have not called pleasure, because it turns on pain, and because it is different enough from any idea of positive pleasure. Whatever excites this delight I call sublime. The passions belonging to self-preservation are the strongest of all the passions. The second head to which the passions are referred with relation to their final cause is society. There are two sorts of societies. The first is the society of sex. The passion belonging to this is called love, and it contains a mixture of lust. Its object is the beauty of women. The other is the great society with man and all other animals. The passion subservient to this is called likewise love, but it has no mixture of lust, and its object is beauty, which is a name I shall apply to all such qualities and things as induce in us a sense of affection and tenderness, or some other passion the most nearly resembling these. The passion of love has its rise in positive pleasure. It is, like all things which grow out of pleasure, capable of being mixed with a mode of uneasiness, that is, when an idea of its object is excited in the mind with an idea at the same time of having irretrievably lost it. This mixed sense of pleasure I have not called pain because it turns upon actual pleasure and because it is both in its cause and in most of its effects of a nature altogether different. Next to the general passion we have for society, to a choice in which we are directed by the pleasure we have in the object. The particular passion under this head, called sympathy, has the greatest extent. The nature of this passion is to put us in the place of another, in whatever circumstance he is in, and to affect us in a like manner, so that this passion may, as the occasion requires, turn either on pain or pleasure, but with the modifications mentioned in some cases in section 11. As to imitation and preference, nothing more need be said. Section 19. The Conclusion. I believed that an attempt to range and methodize some of our most leading passions would be a good preparative to such an inquiry as we are going to make in the ensuing discourse.
The passions I have mentioned are almost the only ones which it can be necessary to consider in our present design, though the variety of the passions is great and worthy in every branch of that variety of an attentive investigation. The more accurately we search into the human mind, the stronger traces we everywhere find of his wisdom who made it. If a discourse on the use of the parts of the body may be considered as a hymn to the Creator, the use of the passions, which are the organs of the mind, cannot be barren of praise to him, nor unproductive to ourselves, of that noble and uncommon union of science and admiration, which a contemplation of the works of infinite wisdom alone can afford to a rational mind. Whilst referring to him, whatever we find of right or good or fair in ourselves, discovering his strength and wisdom even in our own weakness and imperfection, honoring them where we discover them clearly, and adoring their profundity where we are lost in our search, we may be inquisitive without impertinence and elevated without pride. We may be admitted, if I may dare to say so, into the counsels of the Almighty by a consideration of his works. The elevation of the mind ought to be the principal end of all our studies, which, if they do not in some measure effect, they are of very little service to us. But, besides this great purpose, a consideration of the rationale of our passions seems to me very necessary for all who would affect them upon solid and sure principles. It is not enough to know them in general. To affect them after a delicate manner, or to judge properly of any work designed to affect them, we should know the exact boundaries of their several jurisdictions. We should pursue them through all their variety of operations, and pierce into the inmost, and what might appear inaccessible parts of our nature. Quad latit archon, non enarable fibber. Without all this, it is possible for a man, after a confused manner sometimes, to satisfy his own mind of the truth of his work, but he can never have a certain determinate rule to go by, nor can he ever make his proposition sufficiently clear to others. Poets and orators and painters and those who cultivate other branches of the liberal arts have, without this critical knowledge, succeeded well in their several provinces, and will succeed. As among artificers there are many machines made and even invented without any exact knowledge of the principles they are governed by, it is, I own, not uncommon to be wrong in theory and right in practice, and we are happy that it is so. Men often act right from their feelings who after reason but ill upon them from principle, but as it is impossible to avoid an attempt at such reasoning, and equally impossible to prevent its having some influence on our practice, surely it is worth taking some pains to have it just, and founded on the basis of sure experience. We might expect that the artists themselves would have been our surest guides, but the artists have been too much occupied in the practice. The philosophers have done little, 
in what they have done, was mostly with a view to their own schemes and systems. And as for those called critics, they have generally sought the rule of the arts in the wrong place. They sought it among poems, pictures, engravings, statues, and buildings. But art can never give the rules that make an art. This is, I believe, the reason why artists in general, and poets principally, have been confined in so narrow a circle. They have been rather imitators of one another than of nature, and this with so faithful a uniformity, and to so remote an antiquity, that it is hard to say who gave the first model. Critics follow them, and therefore can do little as guides. I can judge but poorly of anything whilst I measure it by no other standard than itself. The true standard of the arts is in every man's power, and an easy observation of the most common, sometimes of the meanest things in nature, will give the truest lights, where the greatest sagacity and industry that slight such observation might leave us in the dark, or, what is worse, amuse and mislead us by false lights. In an inquiry, it is almost everything to be once in a right road. I am satisfied I have done but little by these observations considered in themselves, and I never should have taken the pains to digest them, much less should I have ever ventured to publish them, if I was not convinced that nothing tends more to the corruption of science than to suffer it to stagnate. These waters must be troubled before they can exert their virtues. A man who works beyond the surface of things, though he may be wrong himself, yet he clears the way for others, and may chance to make even his errors subservient to the cause of truth. In the following parts I shall inquire what things they are that cause in us the affections of the sublime and beautiful, as in this I have considered the affections themselves. I only desire one favor, that no part of this discourse may be judged of by itself and independently of the rest. For I am sensible I have not disposed my materials to abide the test of a captious controversy, but of a sober and even forgiving examination, that they are not armed at all points for battle, but dressed to visit those who are willing to give a peaceful entrance to truth. End of part one of A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and the Beautiful by Edmund Burke.